You're listening to a throwback edition of What's Ray Saying, recorded during the early development of the show. If it sounds different, well, I used to do this whole damn thing on my own. I've got a bigger team now, but these early episodes were made with love and are absolutely worth listening to. Enjoy the show. You're listening to What's Ray Saying, the podcast. Now, my my interest in military service probably started when I was a kid, and I remember seeing old pictures of people I actually knew in uniform, TV, movies. My father, my aunt, my uncle, they all served in World War II. I remember seeing hearing older guys talk about their experiences and ventures overseas and in the military that sounded like they were millions of miles away from the place we were living in in that moment in Richmond, Churchill, home. I remember hearing younger guys who were recently home from training or recently back from Vietnam. I remember one of the same experiences, that common experience that seemed to draw those older guys and those younger guys together. It seemed like they knew things that I would never know. They knew things I could never know. I wanted that respect that they seemed to get from the older members of the community, the positive responses they would often get from white people in some areas where they might otherwise just look at you as loitering or good for nothing or typical. You'd look like uh, you have a job, like you're going places, like you have discipline, like you can trust me. But, of course, there were deeper stories that uh, often revealed another double-edged sword, another common experience. True where exceptional service could result in opportunities for black people. Any perceived lack of discipline, though, would be viewed more harshly coming from a black man in the military. And racism could easily be masked by military authority. Now, most of the preachers and black leaders uh, I saw on TV, especially our school teachers, they were generally against the war and the military in general. Most middle-class blacks and people that I respected, people that, black people that had money, they were strictly against the military and military service of any kind for black people, from what I could hear. They seem to view military service, especially voluntary service after uh, the wars, Unintelligent, the last chance for social misfits and degenerates, the brainwashed, the silly, the misinformed, dumbass niggas in general. But in the end, uh, the greater influence on me came from the fact that uh, I was a poor student. I had no chance of going to college on any kind of athletic scholarship. Definitely not academic. I was fit only to go work in the factory. So I sort of took the side of the opinions of the people who were closer to my own socioeconomic status, the poor and the very poor. I mean, those who had lost opportunities, those that never had opportunities, those who were cheated out of their opportunities due to racism or neglect after military service. From the source of all black knowledge in a bomb-proof shelter, with black bears conducting 24-hour-a-day 
ambush patrols around the perimeter of my property, sitting at a desk, looking over doctor's consultations about me needing knee and shoulder replacements due to injuries sustained during military service, and running low on medication for PTSD. You're listening to What's Ray Saying? I'm Ray Christian. Two narratives coming up after this. Hey everybody, this is JC Cassis and I produce the Risk Podcast with Kevin Allison and we are such huge fans of Mr. Ray Christian. We were the first storytelling show to have him on, but we will not be the last because he's a superstar storyteller now and we love him very much. Thanks so much for listening to What's Ray Saying. It's not what Ray's saying, it's what's Ray saying. (laughs) Important to note that. Uh, This is an important show for all Americans and all people around the world to listen to. And Ray, I am so proud of you for doing it. I love listening to you talk about Black American history and culture, especially in that sexy baritone voice of yours, which is awkward, (laughs) but amazing. Um, And yeah, I just wish you the best. You are doing a great job and great important work and everybody needs to listen because the more you know about Black American history, the less of a douchebag you become. All right, everybody. Enjoy the show. Love you, Ray. Bye. From the onset of the American Revolution, both free blacks and slaves were recruited or involuntarily put into service to further the military cause of freedom from Great Britain for the American colonies in British North America. Crispus Attis, identified by historians as a free black man of multiracial descent, was the first to die in this cause. Free black enlisted with the possible promise and the idea that they would be granted rights. Slaves, the possibility of freedom for courageous service. This argument was persuasive enough to compel just over 5,000 blacks to serve. By the same token, the British, who utilized blacks in all support capacities, offered free blacks greater rights and protections and former slaves absolute freedom. This argument influenced more than 50,000 blacks to serve in the British Army. The defeat of the British would result in the overall mistrust of blacks in military service in the new United States for decades to come. There was a complete withdrawal of promises made. During the Civil War, Confederate forces resisted all suggestions that blacks should serve in any capacity other than that of slave labor in support of the Confederate cause. Hundreds of slaves were killed in battle who were in close proximity to a personal master or in the manual service of the Confederate Army. Pictures of blacks in Confederate uniforms 
poorly cited research, misidentified information, all documents or claims that blacks served or volunteered to serve in the Confederate Army were grossly exaggerated post-Civil War era for any measurable purpose compared to the millions of slaves. And based on this argument, that if the South loses, blacks will have no home, no work, life as they previously knew it would change, and the possibility of freedom if they won less than 20. And this would be a very generous estimate were motivated to serve based on this argument. The Union Army, on the other hand, initially deemed blacks as unfit for military service. And that lack of military service supposedly justified why blacks were not afforded all the rights they could because they did not have to put up or sacrifice as much as white people. Now, the early use of black soldiers by the Union Army was relegating them to menial labor or manual construction tasks. These black units were denied basic supplies and support or equal pay. The government made the argument that service for the cause of freedom would result in the end of slavery and the possibility of greater rights and opportunities for all blacks. Based on this argument, more than 200,000 free black men and former slaves were influenced to serve. But following the war, many experienced systematic racism on both sides of the formal conflict. Thousands of former blacks who served in the Union Army were lynched throughout the South. Blacks were often blamed or pointed out as a general cause for the catastrophic devastation brought on the country by the war. Promises made were quickly broken for those who sought life outside the military after the war. Downsides in the Army after the Civil War and the lack of volunteers allowed the Army to raise several regiments of black soldiers to supplement the cavalry that was providing protection and security in the West for constant migration of people and new settlements coming from the East moving to the West. These Indian Wars would go on for decades, almost into the turn of the 20th century, and they put Native Americans and blacks in military conflicts in ways they could never have thought of before with consequences they could never imagine. While blacks were just gaining the right to vote, Native Americans who either supported the Confederacy or were just simply in the way lost the right to vote. And this constant conflict with black soldiers in the West and fighting spirit of Native Americans the Native Americans started describing these black soldiers in these blue uniforms as buffalo soldiers out of fear and respect. But many former slaves and free blacks found life in the military a lot easier to adjust to, to than many whites. Blacks who were formerly subjected to constant abuse, 
Many veterans of the Civil War, former slaves, were highly desired by the Army. And despite their fighting abilities and their purpose and their need and the protections they provided settlers, most blacks, practically all black units, were not allowed to ride horses into the very towns and settlements they protected as this was seen as derogatory to whites to have blacks parading in such a way. Many black soldiers found new opportunities in the West and extreme racism. Promises made, but many opportunities were taken. The haphazard organization and leadership of the American military during the Spanish-American War was a situation required the immediate use and skills of veteran black soldiers. These Buffalo soldiers, whose regiments had been in constant contact and conflict with Native Americans for decades, whose white commanding officers had full faith in their abilities despite the widespread outrage of the sight of blacks in uniforms throughout the South, many from the North and the Western United States, most who had never known the discipline of the whip. Many of these veteran soldiers, these American soldiers, were lynched. But the numbers were considered to be low and of no major consequence as just a few dozen or so were killed. And the mission to train and deport blacks throughout the South and overseas to Cuba was considered a success. Now, despite the tremendous impact and contributions the Buffalo soldiers had in the conflict, it became a policy of yellow journalism to exaggerate the gallantry of American forces, but simultaneously to minimize or omit the service of black completely from all news correspondence. The black community was heavily solicited by the government to enlist in the military. Black support of the war was needed to encourage enlistment and to meet recruitment goals. Given the large number of whites who failed to volunteer or who were generally unfit for military service. The government argument that this was a war for freedom of all and that the ideals upon which this war is being fought could be realized at home. And once again, the argument was made that the contributions of blacks in the military would be an uplift for the entire black community as evidenced by their contribution to the nation. This argument influenced more than 350,000 to serve. Blacks who saw action in France were treated as equal by white French citizens. This was a scary and exciting opportunity for black soldiers who had intimate contact with white women and social equality with white men. Widespread socializing by black soldiers and white citizens were viewed as a potential problem for blacks returning to the U.S. So much so that General Black Jack Pershing, the former commander of the Buffalo Soldiers and now 
commander of all U.S. forces in France, issued a general order forbidding black soldiers from fraternizing with white civilians as a threat to unit morale and stability and home. Promises made were not able to be visualized by a generation of black men who now experienced Europe, a world where blacks could be treated equally. Many returned home with new attitudes and ambitions after seeing a different world and how the world could be. Regularly, black soldiers in uniform were attacked and murdered throughout the United States, in the South and in the North as well. But now, for the first time on a large scale, black soldiers began to fight back, fighting back in a way that resulted in the death of several civilians in the towns around military installations. Outraged civilians demanded justice. Scores of black soldiers were court-martialed and executed or sent to prison for long terms and dishonorably discharged. It would not be into a new investigation during the 1980s and 90s that most of these soldiers had their records corrected and changed and their discharges upgraded to honorable decades after their deaths. While the experiences of World War I had an impact on a number of blacks who served by changing their worldview, World War II would do so on even a greater scale. The argument by the government was that the world faced a threat that threatened all free-loving people around the world. That freedom could come to blacks in America and equality only if they made the same sacrifices as whites. And that until the war was won, nothing could happen by way of change in the U.S. That the contributions of blacks of a previous era would be solidified in stone giving blacks the same benefits as whites and the same pay when they served in the military. The blacks will be treated with greater autonomy, with larger black units and higher-ranking black officers. This argument influenced more than 1.2 million blacks to serve who enlisted at two times the rate of whites. The war saw the emergence of the first black general, first black fighter wing, and on and on and on, and numerous first of all capacities and leadership and responsibilities for black enlisted men and officers. However, this could hardly mask the very open racial discrimination in the military, only blacks. And a few Japanese-American regiments had to endure and that was complete racial segregation from whites. Black soldiers had to obey all orders from all whites. Black soldiers were required to salute all white officers. White soldiers were not required to salute any black officer. Black soldiers were also required to salute all enemy white officers. Blacks were relegated to inferior equipment. During a USO tour, Lena Horne was shocked while performing for black troops when she noticed that they were required to sit behind white POWs. 
black soldiers commanded by racist white officers were given dangerous jobs and assignments, were regularly overlooked for awards and commendations, and were court-martialed at high rates for minor offenses. Following the war, hundreds and thousands of black veterans were catapulted into the middle class by using the GI Bill for education and VA housing loans. However, the rate of black soldiers applying and receiving benefits was very low compared to white veterans. Blacks were often denied loans and discriminatory practices in schooling and educational options put many of them on the outside of receiving benefits. An even larger number of black veterans did not take advantage of government benefits but saw the world in a new light, a world where blacks could prove they could achieve in the hardest environment if just given an equal opportunity. The Korean War started with segregated units, but midway into the war, the army was desegregated by executive order against the wishes of nearly 80% of the army who indicated in their survey they were against integration of the armed forces. Arguments made during this time was that white soldiers would never take orders from blacks. It would disrupt social order and the discipline. Officers threatened to resign. The early use of all black units in the beginning of the Korean War, units that were hastily put together, combat forces, poorly trained, paired all black units with poor white leadership. Often, officers from administrative fields were assigned to black units. Under fire, many of these units failed, and the reputation of black soldiers were put into question again. Integrated units, however, proved to be a success on the battlefield, and all fears were put to rest, as blacks served in all capacities of leadership. But passive racism and bigotry were still influential in promotions, awards, and assignments as the number of blacks serving began to outpace the percentage in the population. This reached its height during the Vietnam War. The Vietnam era saw blacks in the millions serving as whites found more ways to avoid the draft. More blacks were recruited from the inner cities or drafted from the backwoods of the country. Blacks were less proficient at avoiding the draft than whites. Black colleges was not as generous regarding admissions after draft notice. Most black colleges had mandatory ROTC to provide the military with a greater number of qualified black officers if the need ever arose. The general anti-war climate and the growing civil rights movement created a general backlash against ROTC and the draft. Blacks served in higher numbers during Vietnam, served in more combat units with the most dangerous assignments, and died at higher numbers as whites throughout the war. In the post-Vietnam, all-volunteer, professional army, blacks enlisted two to three times the rate as whites. The military reached far and wide to recruit blacks into a voluntary military with promises of equal opportunities for training and benefits and schooling. In the years that followed, blacks would rise to all levels 
as military service and job opportunities were increased. This resulted in major successes. This is the period I joined the Army. And by the late 70s, the entire military looked as if it was half black and brown. Over the next 20 years, as military standards changed, and so did the job market, I saw the overall numbers go down for blacks, but still overwhelmingly serving in the combat arms. My name is Dr. Meredith Evans. I'm now the director of the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library. But I want to tell you about what raised Shane, the podcast. It's nothing to do with the federal government. It just has to do with history, storytelling, and social commentary to explore the black experience. I'm a proud listener, and I love it. What raised Shane, the podcast. I remember I was first stationed in South Korea. It was 1980. U.S. forces were there conducting combat patrols and manning observation posts in a demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. When we were not conducting these missions, we trained from our base camp at Camp Hovey. But I remember when I got into country that... Uh, some of the guys who had been there a while would often say, look, you got to make the most of your time while you're here in Korea. You need to get out and uh, see the people, learn the country, do something, do more than just hanging around, drinking, messing with girls down in the village. And they call this, in a lot of ways, going native. So this day, I remember that I took the bus ride to my base camp in Tokori at Camp Hovey through the mountains, down to the main gate, which allowed you out to the village of Tongdushan, or TDC, or as we called it, the Ville. It's about five miles away. Uh, before showing your pass to exit out the gate, there are a long line of soldiers and signs, big signs up that display the top 10 list for VD. Warnings against black marketing, but my motives were totally different. I was here to go native. I was going to go into the village. I was going into a little kimchi house or tea house or mockley house, as they sometimes call it. Just a little small store where maybe only four or five people could sit in there. And you could get some uh, Korean food to eat and some drinks. So I went in and I ate 12 bowls of kimchi, all different types of kimchi and noodles and and I drank three whole bottles of makale. Needless to say, I was quite drunk. And makale is a sort of like a fermented, uh, I don't know, maybe it's like buttermilk and vodka. It's alcoholic, but very milky in some ways, fermented milky. Well, as you might imagine, one of the most immediate effects of both kimchi and makale was extreme diarrhea. So my stomach got the boiling and gases was coming out of me and I decided that, uh, hey, I need to go in the back and uh, use the bathroom, but uh, it's dark out there, there's not any lighting. And I did find the place and usually in the village, uh, the bathrooms was a cement uh, hole in the floor. 
but sometimes it was a very, very big hole that simply had a piece of uh, heavy-duty cardboard or uh, particle board or plywood or something laid over across of it to fill up the hole with a small hole cut in the middle of it. And so I went out there, I found it, and I pulled down my pants quick as I could and squatted down and dang on it, my wallet fell out down into the hole it went. Well, I was reaching down in there to get my wallet and all through squishy things and uh, I managed to grab my wallet and the cardboard and the plywood broke and snapped and down I went. I'm covered in feces all the way up to my waist, man. This was long before that movie Slumdog Millionaire came out. I mean, I, I had the effect. I, I knew what that felt like. And uh, so I, I did everything I could to crawl my way up out of there. And in doing so, I lost my shoes. I had to leave them behind. I wasn't going back after them. So I did my best to scrape myself off just a little bit. And I went back uh, through the back door inside the uh Mockley house, and immediately the house lady there, Ajima, she started yelling at me, Karachogi, Karachogi, you know, get out of here. Everybody was asking me to get out. I was stinking just too bad. They just slammed the door open and just kind of like shoved me out. And it was like really, really cold outside, and uh, I didn't have any shoes on. And I'm uh, covered feces. Well, Koreans were in the habit sometimes and to of uh, putting their shoes outside the doors. And as you walked by through the alleyways, you'd see shoes sometimes lined up outside the door inside these courtyards. So I went inside one and I grabbed me a pair of shoes. Now, at that time, I was probably wearing a size 11, 11 wide. And these shoes were probably something like five, five skinny. And they were made of plastic and they were curled up at the toes. So I put those on. It's like I can barely walk. It's about a quarter mile from where I'm at to get to the main gate. So I get to the main gate. I reach for my wallet to pull my ID card out. And the MP at the gate, he's already aghast because I'm stinking just really bad. And he didn't even want to look at me when I showed him my ID card. And it was like, oh. It wasn't even me. I had the wrong ID. The MP just weighed me. And man, just go, go, go. Just, just, just go inside. And you know, when you have feces all over you, you know, it just, it just makes you want to cry. And at some point, instinctively, I licked my lips. And at some point, I remember thinking I felt something in my ear and I think I think it was a small piece of corn thinking back on it if someone asked me uh, you know what would you say about the Korean people I mean now I would say you know I really experienced the inside of the Korean people and I would have to say they are Spicy.
Well, this one is done. But I tell you, uh, a lot has been going on in between episodes, and I'm, I'm sorry for having to cancel class, as it were, like that. But uh, let me tell you a little bit of what's been going on with me. I was in Chicago for the very first time, where I had the privilege of telling a story with Shannon Case's homemade stories live. Yeah, he's a great guy, good-looking guy too. His wife is even better looking. All too. Yeah. And from there, I had the privilege of working with master storyteller and producer David Joe Miller in Johnson City, Tennessee. They have mountains there. Yeah. It's almost like home. Uh, and I had the privilege, the real privilege and honor of working with Davey Kim and the great team over at Snap Judgment of WNYC and distributed by NPR. Uh, yeah. These guys are great. Great, great, great. We're going to be doing that again. Well, chickens look like the, the hen is going to keep setting on the eggs this time. So I got to get to that. But you can always follow me on Facebook and Twitter. Make sure you rate me on iTunes and Stitcher. Send me your suggestions, your comments. Just tell me how you feel. I promise you, I will respond. I'm very real like that. I'm very, very real. The show is produced by me with assistance from Dr. T. Special thanks to JC, amazing performance artist and producer. Special thanks to my dear friend and scholar, Dr. Meredith Evans. Original beats by the always amazing Beach Gordy Brooks. Until the next time, bye. You have been listening to What's Ray Saying, the podcast, hosted by Ray Christian. You can find What's Ray Saying on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. If you've got comments, questions, or feedback, you can always reach us via Facebook or by emailing whatsraysaying at gmail.com. Ray says each episode is made with love, fatback, chicken feed, and fresh mountain spring water, but none of these are legal tender according to the electric company. To help this listener-supported podcast pay the bills and keep producing episodes like the one you just heard, you can click on our Donate tab on Facebook or go to paypal.me slash what's Ray saying. Tell a friend or two or 12 or 20 what you just heard on What's Ray Saying, the podcast. Until next time.